Welcome to the very first episode of my all-new podcast, Off-Campus History. This podcast is all about public representations of history. Each episode, I'll be talking to another historian about the history they study and research, and how it's depicted in a particular representation. This representation might be a movie, a TV show, a game, a museum exhibit, a school curriculum, or something else entirely. Basically any kind of history that's aimed at the general public. Who am I? I'm your host, Lewis Reedwood. I'm a PhD candidate in history at the University of Toronto. My own research focuses on the history of mass media and communication in 19th century America, particularly during the era of the Civil War. So my own expertise is in American history primarily, and I also have a secondary specialization in Canadian history. My own research interests might be reflected in the guests and topics that come on the show, but I'm hoping to talk about other histories outside of these areas as well. The guest for our first ever episode is an old friend of mine, Stephen Langlois. Stephen is a PhD student in history at the University of Alberta, and has been a friend of mine since we did our undergrads together at the University of Saskatchewan. We'll be talking about the Fernald Preserve. The Fernald Preserve is essentially a nature park that has been built on the site of a Cold War era uranium refinery. From 1951 to 1989, the site was known as the Fernald Feeds Material Production Center. Located 18 miles northwest of downtown Cincinnati, Ohio, it refined and produced uranium products for the American Nuclear Weapons Program. By 1989, the final year of uranium production at Fernald, the amount of contamination was staggering. In 1990, the Centers for Disease Control reported that through Fernald's refining activities, huge amounts of radioactive contaminants had been released into the atmosphere and surface water. In a separate study completed eight years later, the CDC further concluded that the pollution released by Fernald increased local residents' risk of dying from lung cancer by 1 to 12 percent. Not just contracting lung cancer, but dying of lung cancer. Among the 43 to 50,000 people who had resided within 10 kilometers of Fernald between 1952 and 1988, the CDC estimated that anywhere from 25 to 309 excess lung cancer deaths would occur as a direct result of the, of the pollution from Fernald. Fernald is a site with a fascinating and complex environmental and labor history, so I'm excited to talk about it with my friend Stephen here today. Let's get into it. Okay, very excited. This is the first episode of Off Campus History, and our special guest for today's episode, the interviewee, Stephen Langlois. How's it going, everyone? Stephen, thank you for being our very first guest. Are you excited to for the inaugural episode of the podcast? I am. Uh, I was excited before, and now learning that I'll be the very first uh episode is even more exciting thank you for having me it's a lot of pressure so don't mess it up i won't i promise <laughs> okay so why don't you tell the listeners a little bit about yourself i've known you for since our undergrads at the university of saskatchewan but uh now you're you're working on a phd so tell us a little bit about who you are what you study yeah, sure. So my name is Stephen Langwa, and I am currently a PhD student at the University of Alberta. My research focuses on uranium production in North America during the Cold War, and especially its connection to 
the American Nuclear Weapons Program. Cool stuff. Neat stuff. People people like the Cold War, right? It's like a. I, I think it's everybody's favorite historical period. Other than whatever it is I studied. <laughs> yeah, what what is that again? Good question. Let's save that for another episode. No. Um, so, today we're going to be talking about the Fernald Preserve. Maybe some people will have heard of it, but I think a lot of the listeners will not have heard of the Fernald Preserve. So, can you explain a little bit about what this site is? Right. So, about 18 miles northwest of downtown Cincinnati, there's a site, it's about a thousand acres in size, and, and it's a green site. There's some wetlands, there's some walking trails, there are sort of places you can view wildlife in the middle of an otherwise agricultural sort of area. But the way the Fernald Preserve started is it started as a, a uranium refinery or uranium production site. In the 1950s, the Americans decided that they needed to consolidate what was otherwise a sort of widespread uranium production system into one single facility, and they, they chose what became the Fernald production site. Construction started in 1951. By 1954, it was producing its first shipments of uranium. And so now that's sort of the, uh, the, the setup, is that we have something that was an incredibly toxic radioactive industrial site that has now been turned into a, a greenfield. Okay, so fernal production site building or refining uranium for nuclear weapons during the Cold War eventually is shut down. So why is the site shut down? Right. So there, there's sort of a couple of things that happened in the 1980s. There are a bunch of protests once the people living around the site finally figure out sort of what's going on. But that's not the reason it, it shuts down. So there's a big scandal starting in about 1983, 1984. But production continues all the way until 1989, when we sort of have the beginnings of the end of the Cold War, I would say. And this lowering of tensions convinces the American government that they don't need to produce uranium anymore for nuclear weapons. They're, they're convinced that they have enough that, for the foreseeable future, if anything were to happen, they've got enough uranium on hand that they can just make more weapons from if they need to. So they shut down the site. And if you look at the Department of Energy, they call this a, a change of mission. They don't say the Fernald site shut down. They don't say we're, we're finished with production. They say we changed our mission. Our mission used to be making uranium. Now our mission is to clean up the site. Mm -hmm. And this is sort of the beginning of the cleanup. And it takes them another half a decade to, to really decide what they're going to do with this site. They're not sure whether or not they're going to turn it into an industrial park. They're pretty sure they can't farm on this site any longer or build houses. Right. So they are going to... Eventually what they decide to is to try to turn it into a green space. And it's, as far as I understand, the only Department of Energy nuclear weapons site that's been turned into green space. And so it's kind of celebrated in the DOE, Department of Energy, as a success story. They spent billions of dollars. They hauled away the worst of the waste. They buried a lot of the stuff that was already there. And, and that's what they decided to do with it. Right. This kind of blew my mind. You sent me an article, which I'll put in the show notes for this episode, 
that I thought was a it was well written, right? And it, it talked about how they sort of yeah they took away the worst of the waste, but there's still some waste under there, right? So so is the site safe now for people? So that question is always is always really really tricky. Is it safe? And and to talk about safety and radiation and uranium, a couple of things you should know. So once like if we think back to the the beginnings of, of radiation when they first discovered radiation at the end of the the 19th century they were pretty sure pretty quickly that if you received enough of a dose of radiation quickly enough you would die that was pretty obvious pretty quickly that high levels of radiation will kill you mm-hmm. what was less well known was what happens if you have small amounts of radiation over a long period of time and it still wasn't that much of a mystery. You know, by the 1920s, you have the, the famous case of the radium girls who are, are painting radium watch dials, and they're licking the tip of the paintbrush in order to get a finer tip to paint better with. And in, in ingesting all of this radium, they developed bone cancer, and they died fairly quickly. So people under, scientists understood that, that small amounts of radiation over a long period of time will also kill you. By the 1940s and 1950s, the American nuclear weapons production system tries to set some sort of limits for how much radiation can you take on the job before it becomes dangerous. Mm -hmm. And so they start coming up with some numbers, and those numbers have been steadily revised. As time goes on, they get higher and higher and higher, like, you know, or lower, lower. You can't have, you can have only a little bit of radiation, a little bit, a little bit. And I think the reason they came up with these numbers, this isn't just kind of speculation, but I think what they were trying to do was trying to figure out how could we have a nuclear industry that is, is successful and, and but also tries to prevent people from dying. Right. <laughs> and so they, ha- they had to come up with some sort of number, right? Sure. And in the last, I would say, especially since the 1970s, 1980s, you now have a new sort of philosophy of, of what is safe. And that new philosophy is any amount of radiation is unsafe. Sort of like the same way we talk about cigarettes today, right? Is that smoking any cigarette is is unhealthy for you. Even though one cigarette is probably not going to give you lung cancer, you still should not smoke cigarettes. I mean, it's that clear. So I think the same now applies with radiation. Any amount of radiation is unhealthy. It builds up over a lifetime, so you should avoid any unnecessary exposure. Yet, we still have safety limits. So, you know, the, the EPA, the American EPA, still has a limit for how much uranium can you have in drinking water. And it's something like, you know, 0.03 parts per billion or something like that. Like, it's a tiny amount. Sure. So, the Fernald site, completely safe to visit. Completely safe to go and go for a hike there. You can go and work there every day. Completely safe. There's still hundreds of pounds of uranium in the groundwater. And the ground that groundwater leaches into the, the Great Miami River. So... Yet the EPA claims that that river water, that groundwater, the the concentration is low enough that it is safe to drink, but the material is still there. Yikes! Yeah, it mm, it sounds like mm, okay, maybe not which ideal. <laughs> which exactly? It's a very unsatisfying answer. Yeah. It's a very unsatisfying answer to say hundreds of pounds of uranium leach into the river every year. Yeah. Don't worry about it. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, that's concerning. 
Okay, but the site, the Fernald site is safe to to visit, right? To sort of take a hike in and that sort of thing? Yeah, for sure. You Definitely safe to take a hike there. Uh, you know, I wouldn't eat anything I found on the ground there. I, I wouldn't build a house there. I wouldn't eat anything that was grown locally. But, but visiting purposes, I think probably pretty safe. Okay. So this podcast is about representations of history for the public, right? And so in, what's, in what ways does the site itself talk about its history? Right. And this is something I'm actually quite as curious, I think, about as as perhaps the listeners are, because I haven't yet visited this site. Mm-hmm. I haven't been inside the interpretive center. And what I found online was actually quite limited. Okay. I didn't see a lot of the exhibits they have. I know for sure they have sort of a pillar, like a, a concrete pillar in the middle of the room that seems to hold up the roof. And using that pillar, what they've done is they've sort of shown you a cross-section of what's buried in the ground. Hmm. And so I think that's fairly neat to kind of give people a visual representation of, you know, this is what's actually beneath our feet, is is this sort of nuclear waste. Mm-hmm. Yet how they reconcile with the history of, A, nuclear weapons production, right. in, a, in a sort of a larger sense, and B, the local site, the local history of this site, is, I think, perhaps lacking partly because they don't i think as far as i understand they don't make that connection to the larger nuclear weapons complex like i try to do in my own research and i don't think they talk so much about sort of the human story as much as you might expect or might like to see or as we might like to see as historians right especially you know their story right these protests in the 80s about people who are worried about getting cancer Maybe that's not something they wanted to uh, to feature. I think that article you sent me said that people in the Fernald area still receive sort of regular cancer testing from the government because they're worried about that still. Yeah, and, and it's more than just uh, cancer testing. So what they did is they sued. They, they had a lawsuit right. in the 1990s. Anybody living in a, 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 I think it was a 10-mile radius, they said. Anybody in a 10-mile radius, they got together and formed a lawsuit. And they won. They won hundreds of millions of dollars. And part of the settlement wasn't just cash, but money set aside to have a medical screening program for anybody who lived in this 10-mile radius at any time from 1952 to 1989, I think is what they they set those dates. Hmm. And so anybody who was in this lawsuit and was a successful applicant has access to what I imagine is like basic healthcare in Canada. Which is kind of... <laughs> right. Okay. <laughs> so they, they get to go to a doctor and they get a bunch of tests for free, which other Americans can't do. Right. And part of the outcome of that has been doctors uh, have been very happy with this program because they're not just catching the lung cancer that they're looking for. They're also catching all sorts of other illnesses that might otherwise not have been detected. And so because of that, 30 years on, they're starting to say, this cohort of people who are living near Fernald, they're at high risk for lung cancer. But because so many of them are seeing a doctor so regularly, they're catching all sorts of other diseases, and their life expectancy is actually higher than people who were not living close to the plant. It's a really strange outcome. Yeah, that feels like an indictment of private health care more than it does anything else, really. Which, which, I, which I'm happy to do. Yeah. <laughs> so 
This site is currently managed by the U.S. Department of Energy's Office of Legacy Management, which I did not, I guess it makes sense that that office exists. I had never really thought about it before, though. How do you think the fact that it's managed by the Department of Energy affects how the site represents its history? I think it's it's fairly significant because it, we can imagine an alternative where the Department of Energy is no longer involved and the site is being run by like a local activist group, mm-hmm. like like Fresh. So Fresh was was a kind of a local activist group that got started up because people started to find uranium in their groundwater, and it was it was made of people who weren't otherwise active in political causes or other sorts of things. It's a classic example of this not in my backyard movement. Right. Something like you we saw at Love Canal earlier. And so the Department of Energy's Office of Legacy Management, there, there's a fun tidbit where for several years in the 2000s and 2010s, it was led by a man named Michael Silverman. And Silverman got his PhD in environmental history in the year 2000. So you have an environmental historian running an office of the Department of Energy, whose job it is, is to look after this huge environmental mess Mm. that's left over from decades of nuclear weapons production. And so, you know, they've done a better job than you might expect. I think that they have done a decent job. But again, their response kind of ebbs and flows with administrations in Washington, D.C. Right. So as far as I understand, under Clinton's administration, the Department of Energy sort of had a a reckoning moment where they opened up their archives and genuinely tried to engage with shareholders a little bit better than you might expect, which started to break down during Bush's presidency. I think it got a little bit better under Obama's and then more recently shut down again. So I think it's complex. You have a government agency that can be good at some times, other times is a little more hesitant to talk about the the worst that has happened and yet they can also move mountains and turn a a toxic waste dump into a green space right i i guess one of the challenges of sort of directly government run historic sites can be that these things can become political footballs right where one party doesn't like how a certain representation of history comes across and appoints people who will represent it another way or that sort of thing. So I suppose that's, a, yeah, that's an interesting challenge for, for Fernald. This leads into a, a, another question I wanted to ask you about environmental history and representations of environmental history to the public, right? Part of, obviously this site, there's a lot of themes related to it, environmental history, labor history, history of the Cold War. But one of the most prominent is environmental history, the history of this, sort of this radioactive pollution. Do you think there are unique challenges in presenting environmental history to the public as opposed to other types of history? My sense is that the public is often really interested in sort of the human stories of history, right? The sort of what life was like for people. And environmental history can be that, but sometimes also is very focused on the non-human world. And I think that can be a challenge. What are you, what are your thoughts on this? No, I, I totally agree because 
I think environmental historians, we like to frame our subfield as, you know, a study of how people have acted on the environment and how the environment has acted on people, sort of this, this two-way conversation. Hmm. And I think the Fernald site as it stands, having not visited, big disclaimer, having not visited the site, I think it sort of represents a story of how people have acted on the environment okay. with very little context. So I think without connecting Fernald to a larger nuclear weapons production complex and leaving out, I think, the workers and residents in the area, I think you're left with with very one-sided story of how this is how the American government kind of destroyed, but then miraculously cleaned up an industrial site. But if if you looked at it the other way and said, but how did the environment influence Fernald? How did it influence the workers and the residents? Why did the Atomic Energy Commission choose this site in the first place? These sorts of questions that aren't clear in the way that the, the the interpretive site has been set up. Hmm. Do you know why, by the way, this is an aside, but do you know why the site was chosen out of curiosity? Yeah, luckily they wrote it down. Okay. So <laughs> <laughs> they, they, they had a very clear set of criteria. Whenever the Atomic Energy Commission or the Manhattan Project wanted to set up a new site, they had pretty clear criteria of what they wanted. They wanted, especially in the case of Fernal, they wanted a ready labor force, they didn't want to have to create a new community out of nowhere. So that they were happy to locate it near a major city like Cincinnati. Right. You, they wanted a piece of flat ground that they didn't have to do much construction to get the site ready. Okay. They wanted flowing water, a source of flowing water nearby so that they could dump any pollutants. Ugh. And they... Yeah, they, and then they, this and this is wild because to put yourself in a pre-environmental era, this is what all industries looked for. Every industry looked for a way to get rid of their waste that was cheap, and rivers have always done that. Right. This is sort of before the environmentalist reckoning of America's rivers are on fire and so forth. Exactly, and I think to, even today, if you were to build a new industrial site, you're still looking for that river right. to provide a way to get rid of things that are have been treated. Even once you treat your, your waste, you can still put it in the river. Mm. Anyways, and then they were looking for groundwater. They were looking for a source of, of groundwater that they could use in the industrial process as well. Okay. As well as an electricity uh, source, but that's not necessarily environmental. Okay. So what are your thoughts on the fact that the representation of this site is now as a nature preserve? The article that you shared with me, which again, I'll put in the show notes, it described how there's sort of some old sites of the buildings are now, the um, the foundations are now filled in by ponds and stuff like that. Do you see this as a useful way to represent the history of the site or putting it to a better use? Or do you think it's covering up the industrial history of the site in some way? What, do you, what are your thoughts on this? Yeah, so I think there, there's a couple of... of of you know there's pros and cons to what they decided to do i personally i would have liked to have seen a building or a couple of buildings kept intact right now there's challenges with that when you have a very a deeply contaminated industrial building sure uh the cost of trying to decontaminate it while still keeping it intact is quite high Mm. and so do you really want people to be walking around this building that they couldn't quite decontaminate properly probably not that's fair on the other hand, 
they could have done what they did with the sister plant in Weldon Springs. So Fernald had a sister plant that did the exact same job and was built roughly within the same kind of decade. It didn't run for as long. It only it only operated for about 15 years. But it, it was located in Weldon Spring, Missouri. Okay. And it also went through a decommissioning process. But what they did in Weldon Spring is they... Pre- prior to the site being decommissioned, they were putting all of the waste into a nearby quarry. Hmm. So a big hole in the ground. Right. And, they, and so what they decided to do when they closed down Weldon Spring was demolish the site, bury it all in this quarry, and then cover it with 75 feet of gravel. And so you can go to Weldon Spring, Missouri today, and you can go visit the former Weldon Spring site, but it's just a, a, a hill, a hill of gravel, and you can go stand on top of the hill. And they advertise it as such. They say, you can look out on the, on the Missouri prairie, and isn't it beautiful? Sounds like a vacation to me. That's, I've, I'm saving my pennies right now. <laughs> and so I think what they did with Weld, or Fernald is, is much more, more preferable than what they did with Weldon Spring, for obvious reasons. Right, okay. Interesting. So, an interesting comparison that I thought of when thinking about the Fernald Preserve were some other sites of nuclear history that tend to get portrayed as, well, not just tend to be, but they were sites of disaster, right? That's sort of the the narrative around a lot of sort of the places people think of as sites of nuclear history, right? You might think of Chernobyl, Three Mile Island, but also places like Hiroshima, Bikini Atoll, the idea that there's this sort of incredible violence that takes place extremely suddenly. Fernald's story is very different than those sites in that, you know, there there are some people who become unwell, but it's not a site of imminent violence in the same way as those other sites or, or sort of a catastrophic moment in the same way. What do you think are some of the challenges in presenting that type of history to the public? Yeah, I think there's plenty. You know, you think of Chernobyl, Hiroshima, Three Mile Island. These are places you can make TV shows and movies out of because there is a sort of one pivotal event that happens. Right. And it's dramatic and it's violent. And it is uh, something that captures people's attention. Things that happened at Fernald were monotonous. It was industrial it was the same thing day after day after day and that's how it's supposed to be there was maybe one small incident at fernald where the newspapers reported back in 1983 this was sort of when the story broke and i'm going to use broken quotation marks because there's another story about what people knew and when they knew it Mm. there was a story that broke and said you know fernald accidentally released 300 pounds of uranium dust into the air whoops and, you know, that's not TV-worthy. That's not dramatic, necessarily. Hmm. So they do have this this issue where people aren't necessarily interested in what happened because people are slowly dying of cancer. They're slowly dying from workplace incidents. It is not uh, an explosion, which is what gets people's attention. Yeah, I think this is a challenge for public history more generally, right? Is that a lot of the time people are interested in very dramatic sudden events, right? Like a battle or or something like that. And a lot of what historians do is not that, right? And especially I think environmental history or environmental historians are very interested in sort of long durée of history 
usually. Yeah, and so it it does become a challenge because, like we said, kind of dramatic short-term battles and explosions catch the people's attention, and things that take place over decades, over centuries, are harder to portray in a way that's exciting, necessarily. You know, you, you might try and catch the public's attention and say, you know, at this site, people refined uranium for, for 30 years, and you might have joe blow who responds yeah that's what i do at work that's not exciting it's not i don't want to learn about it because i already experience it daily so how do you make that sort of site interesting for the public what do you i mean that's sort of i guess the the million dollar question for historians how do we make our history interesting to the public but do you have any thoughts on how to make that a more engaging portrayal for the public yeah so i mean i took the the cheap route and and picked something related to radiation Mm. and nuclear weapons, because that that will energize the public a little bit better than perhaps agriculture. Um, Maybe. Maybe, maybe. So that's sort of, I think, one way. In my own research, I try to connect Fernald with the other sites in the nuclear weapons system that have attracted more attention and that are perhaps a little bit more dramatic. Like, Like, you know, when you think about Places that nuclear weapons have exploded. The Nevada test site, Bikini Atoll, Hiroshima. These places are directly connected to a place like Fernald. Because Fernald produced the uranium that eventually went into the nuclear weapons. But drawing out that comparison is not necessarily exciting. Hmm. I also think a useful comparison for Fernald are... Not necessarily nuclear history places, although those are relevant, but also mining towns and factory towns. I think that they embody a similar attitude, what I assume is the attitude in front of, I mean, I'll ask you, but the idea that on the one hand, people from these sorts of towns often take pride in the fact that their town produced a particular product or mined a particular mineral or that sort of thing, and that, that that work was the source of the town's prosperity. On the other hand, the industry often had very negative effects on people in the community, health problems, degradation of the environment, that sort of thing. Do you think this is a, a fair comparison for Fernald? And do you have any thoughts on... Do you know anything about what the surrounding community thinks of the, the historic site nearby? So this one is actually quite tricky and fairly interesting because Fernald tends to buck the trend mm. of, of company towns in, in a lot of ways. Mm-hmm. So obviously Cincinnati was an industrial center before Fernald came along. And when the Atomic Energy Commission first announces in 1950, 1951, that yes, we're going to build a, an atomic bomb plant, what the newspapers referred to it as, an atomic bomb plant, right. in Cincinnati, people were quite excited. Or at least the newspapers were. So they were they were sort of boosting this factor. You know, this is great. It's going to bring uh, more jobs to the area. It, it, you know, this is what we want as a city. And then a little while later, a couple years later, there was talk of having a second plant in Cincinnati. And then the newspapers were a lot less excited because they thought one plant is fine. Two plants <laughs> makes us a target for Soviet bombers. Oh, so right. we can't have two. So there was there was actually this tension at the time of, we want to host industry, we want to be do our patriotic duty and produce nuclear weapons to defend the nation, but we don't want to become a target ourselves. 
Which is a little ironic because Cincinnati would have been a target with or without an atomic bomb plant. Just being a city with industry was, was enough reason to be on the list. Right, okay. So what you have with Fernell, once it gets going, it's a site, 18 miles northwest, uh, 1,000 acres. Not necessarily a huge plant. It's definitely not on the scale of like, like a Ford automobile plant in Detroit, uh, Rouge River. Much larger, I think, than... than, than Fernald. And so you have people commuting to work from city center of Cincinnati to Fernald outside of town. And what eventually happens in the in the interim period. So Fernald is announced as this atomic bomb project in the 50s. In the 60s, 70s, 80s, people start to move into the area what had been rural farmland. So not a lot of people living in the area and the people who were living in the area were mostly farmers. This slowly changes over time. People begin to move in t- outside of town because they're looking for sort of what we call in Western Canada, they want to live on an acreage. They want to have sort of the peace and quiet of country life and still work in the city. Right. And these people are genuinely shocked in the early 1980s when news breaks again that there is an atomic bomb plant outside of Cincinnati. You, you hear an anecdote fairly often among people who were there. They say that they thought Fernald was a, a dog feed or a horse feed or an agricultural feed plant because the official name of the site was the Fernald Feed Materials Production Center. Right. And so anybody who is familiar with the, the nuclear industry knew what feed materials were. They're materials you feed into the reactors mm-hmm. to produce nuclear weapons. Mm-hmm. That wasn't clear to people living in the area. So they were genuinely shocked to find a, a nuclear facility in literally in their backyards so they were very much not happy they were not proud of this feature and do you know if people how people feel about it now in Fernald like I I think of I saw something recently about asbestos Quebec and right asbestos recently changed its name very recently I think within the last year but for a long time, stuck with the old name, even though to modern day ears, it sounds very strange, but stuck with it because of this th- sort of attitude of like, well, that's our history. That's almost why the town exists to mine this mineral. Do you know if people today feel like perhaps frustrated that the government did this unsafe thing nearby, or do they feel like they helped win the Cold War? Like, what is their attitude? Do you know? Yeah, so uh, I don't know for sure. Mm-hmm. There was a oral history project done in starting in 1997 okay. among people who had lived and worked in the area, the Fernald Living History Project. And there was a spectrum of answers to this question. There were workers who used to work there who were very proud that they did their patriotic duty. They were paid well they don't necessarily have any ill health effects and they they were happy to have worked there. You have residents who had no idea what they were getting themselves into when they bought a house nearby who are very upset and are still upset. Right. You have people who got sick who are upset. But this idea of, you know, what does it mean for the history of our town? That's interesting because, you know, Fernald has come and gone. It was it was there for a relatively short period of time. Now it's a it's a big green square. Right. Whereas, if you look at other places in the nuclear weapons complex, like Hanford, Washington, 
was created out of uh, ranch land to become a plutonium production facility, they're still quite proud of what they were created to do. I know during the Cold War that the local high school in Hanford, the local high school football team was called the Hanford Bombers. Hmm. You know, like, we will. this is who we are. We will literally bomb our enemies during the Cold War if it comes to this. And I think that's still their name today. They're still quite happy to be associated with this this nuclear industry. With Fernald, I don't think there was ever sort of a, an association or a identification. If the people in the local area had forgotten within 20 years that it was even there, I that's think... That's a good point, yeah. <laughs> I, I think that that's, yeah, what they... They sort of forgot about it and then were outraged when they were reminded. That's interesting. I feel like it's so bizarre that you would forget that that was in your backyard. It's very strange. It and it's it's been it's been a conundrum for me to figure out how to write about it because when you say you 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 know it's you don't want to accuse these people of of purposefully forgetting. You don't want to accuse them of being not you know why wouldn't you do your research kind of thing. You don't want to accuse them of that because I think that's a bit unfair. Mm-hmm. At the same time, it is it is glaring to to read a a, a newspaper headline front page. 1951, you know, a bomb plant to be built here, exactly right here. Right. This is where it is. And then people moving into the area not knowing that it's there. I do think this is something that happens a lot with people's attitudes to the environment and environmental history, though, is that if it's not literally right in front of your face, it's easy to ignore pollution, environmental issues. Right. Well, and and this is a, a particular problem with radiation. You can't see radiation. You can't sense it. It is invisible to you until you're dead. It's it's a it's a difficult toxin to reconcile with. That makes sense. Interesting what you've had to say about the local attitudes, because I think, I mean, that seems to me like it exemplifies attitudes about nuclear energy. Somewhat more generally, right, is this sort of ambivalence about, on the one hand, people in the 40s, 50s were very excited about its possibilities. On the other hand, kind of scared, right? Yeah, especially, yeah, when you when you consider, you know, this, this plant, this facility could bring prosperity, and it, it could make Cincinnati important because we're defending the nation. And I think that was still fresh in people's minds from the Second World War, where these plants that had previously produced cars were now producing tanks and were going to win the war, right? They were sort of caught up in that in that war patriotism. Mm-hmm. Only six years later, we have the same sort of idea, right? We're going to build this plant, it's going to build bombs, and those bombs will protect the nation. And then you have a lot of stuff happens from 1951 to 1983 when people are alerted to uranium in their groundwater. You know, people saw what they could see from the road. They could see a water, a big water tower with a kind of a checkerboard pattern on it. And they could see a sign outside that said Fernald Feed Materials Production Plant. Right. And people would report to this day that they say, you know, that logo that they had is very similar to the Purina dot, like right. pet food brand. And so they were, you know, why stir... Why stir the pot? Why go investigating when there's nothing wrong? This plant wasn't, as far as I could tell, wasn't producing, like, noxious fumes. It wasn't doing anything that would normally alert you to 
danger. You live in the country. There's farms. The, the plant is surrounded by farms. Uh, there's no reason to uh, go investigating. That's another interesting point, because I think a lot of the time, historically, we think about pollution as specifically an urban problem. And that's not really the case. I mean, a lot of the pollution produced is, you know, greenhouse gases produced in the, the Alberta tar sands, right? Or cutting down the forests or these sorts of things. You know, there's a lot of sort of environmental degradation that takes place in rural places. And yet I think people's iconic image of pollution is a smoggy city. Right. Because smog is something that directly affects our senses mm -hmm. and is noxious and is insulting to our, to our human bodies. Mm -hmm. Whereas, you know, how do you detect a greenhouse gas? Can you really tell that acid rain is acidic when it, until the trees are dead? That's interesting. So comparing the site to your own research, what would you like to change about the site if you were in charge of historical interpretation at Fernald? What would you do or, or change? I mean, and this will give away my, my own research immediately, is that I think what needs to be more front and center is the the connection to the greater weapons system right i think there needs and that again they might actually have this at the interpretive site and it's just not on their website mm -hmm. but i think there needs to be a direct connection to fernald the uranium refinery and for example hanford the plutonium production facility that accepted fuel rods from fernald and turned them into plutonium I think there needs to be a connection between Fernald and the uranium mines in Canada that that fed the feed materials production center. Because so what we have in the public imagination right now is a series of, of toxic waste dumps across the United States and Canada that have no connection to them when there's a very clear connection. And the connection is also the reason for being. It's hard to make sense of why the American government put a uranium refinery in the middle of Ohio countryside and polluted the groundwater until you connect it to the larger system. Right, and the the potential and in some cases real violence of the system as well, right? I'm assuming that there's no sort of connection made at the site. I, again, I don't know having been there, but I, I would be very surprised to learn that there's any discussion of Oh, and these, the uranium we refined here went on to be tested in Pacific Islands that made some people living on those islands very sick. For sure, that that is a great connection and one that I would like to make a little bit more forcefully in my future research, mm -hmm. and one I think the public should be aware of. We like to talk about the Cold War as a sort of a period in history where there was a lot of tension and things could have gone wrong. A lot of people could have died. And yet, we don't talk about the people who did die, right. who got sick making these weapons. The weapons killed people without ever being used. That's true. It always blows my mind as well that people are like, oh, thank gosh we only had like many small wars in the Cold War. We didn't have one big war, but still many people died. It, exactly. So I think the terminology we use, the Cold War, as if it was always cold, nobody ever got hurt, and how silly was it that we were, uh, you know, so ready to go to war 
without actually having done it. I think these are very dangerous ideas. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Any final thoughts about Fernald that you want to share? One of the things I was actually quite surprised about Fernald to learn is that the CDC actually did come up with a number and they said, in a 10-mile radius of the plant, anybody living there from 1950, whatever, to 1980, whatever, has a 1% to 12% increased chance of dying from lung cancer. Not just getting it, but dying from it. Wow. So I thought that was really interesting that they actually came up with a solid number when these are so hard to find with these sort of studies. And the other interesting thing is that that's the residents, not the workers actually going into the plant. So you have this strange, strange pattern where perhaps the workers were actually better protected because they were wearing protective measure at some point, whereas residents playing in their backyards, why would you put on a mask? Right. Of course, because it's not 2020. That's why. Uh... Exactly. (laughs) Those were better times. (laughs) Um, not if you got lung cancer, but, uh... No, not a good time. Yeah. All right, well, those are all my questions for you. Thank you so much for your time, for coming on the podcast. It was really interesting to learn a bit more about Fernald and your own research. Um, Oh, thanks for having me. It's awesome to talk about your research. That's our show for today. Thanks for sticking around until the end. And thanks to Stephen for being our first ever guest on the show. We mentioned an article in the episode today. I'll include a link to it in the show notes, but I'll also mention it here. It's an article titled, What Lies Beneath Fernald Preserve, and it's in Cincinnati Magazine by Jenny Wolfarth. I've also included a link to a documentary that was made during the Cold War about Fernald in the show notes, so definitely check that out as well. Artwork for the podcast was made by Nethkaria, and music was created by Nella Ruiz. Follow the show on Instagram at Off Campus History, all one word, no hyphen, and follow our Facebook page for the show as well. I have a personal Twitter account, at Lewis Reedwood, if you'd like to follow me there too. And if you'd like to write in a comment or something like that, I've created an email address for the show, offcampushistory at gmail.com. Again, offcampushistory is all one word with no hyphen. If you're a fellow historian who has a topic you'd like to talk about on the show, I invite you to send me a message, as I'm looking to line up guests for future episodes. And of course, I'd love to hear comments from other folks as well. I hope you enjoyed, and I hope you'll join me next time for some more off-campus history. (laughs) 